Hey everyone, Jarrett Fuller here, and this is Scratching the Surface. This is a bittersweet episode. This is uh, not the introduction that I had originally recorded, and it's definitely not the introduction uh, that I wanted. The truly incomparable Harry Cobb passed away yesterday at 93, and this week's episode is a conversation that I had with him at the end of 2019. Henry, for those of you who don't know, was a founding partner of Paycob Freedom Partners, the international architecture firm co-founded by IM Pay in 1955. He was the chair of the architecture program at the Harvard Graduate School of Design from 1980 to 1985. And in 2018, he published his first book, Words and Works, 1948 to 2018, that uh, sort of used his career to trace what he calls the predicament of architecture. I had read the book last year and was just completely blown away by it, both the form and structure of it, but also the content. Here was a book that felt like a monograph, but wasn't a monograph. It felt like theory, but wasn't written like theory. And so I wrote a review of it for Design Observer. And shortly after it was published, I got an email from an architect who used to work for, for Cobb asking if I'd be interested in an introduction and if I was interested in having him on the show. And I obviously could not say no to that. So late last year, right before Thanksgiving, I visited Harry in his home one evening where we spoke for a long time about his career and about this book, uh, about his time as chair of the architecture department at Harvard, and about the state of architecture today. Since hearing that he had died late last night, I find myself thinking uh, about the end of this conversation. I wanted to know what it was about architecture that kept his interest for 70 years. We talked about what he was working on, a new building he had hoped to see finished in his lifetime, and a new book that he was currently writing, and other projects he was thinking about. And here was someone who, even after a seven-decade career, was still asking questions, was still thinking, was still interested. Uh, if I'm lucky to live to 90, I hope that I feel the same way. Uh, in a way, I guess that's what scratching the surface has always been about. He was incredibly generous and answered all of my questions thoughtfully. And when we stopped recording, he turned the conversation back to me and asked about what I was interested in and what I was working on. And from what I've seen, this is how he was with everyone. Here is someone who had this outsized influence on architecture, but did so with humility, with generosity, with grace. And in my experience, that's a rare combination. So this episode is for Harry. It is a thank you for his work, for his writing, for sharing, for teaching, for giving, and for this conversation. It meant a lot to me and it means even more to me now. And I hope that this is a fitting tribute and perhaps another small way to remember him. So. Here is me and Henry Cobb. I'd like to start actually by talking about the book a little bit and a little bit about how the book came together because I think there's something striking in the format of the book itself. The fact that it's a very small book, the fact that it kind of mixes text and image uh, and gives those equal weight, and that in thinking about your entire career, it isn't just looking at your built work, but is also looking at your writing, your thinking, your teaching, and it handles all of those equally. It doesn't necessarily give kind of prominence to one over the other. And I'm curious about 
why you wanted to do that and how you were thinking about this book as you were putting it together. Um, the book only took 20 years. <laughs> and never would have happened if Emma had not only prodded me, but done most of the mm -hmm. hard work that has to be done, especially with when you have a book full of pictures, which is, uh, but, but let me just start by saying, I've received uh, very gratifying positive responses to the book. And almost everyone who writes to me starts by commenting on the form of Yeah. Which I'm very pleased to hear because the one thing that um, I felt strongly about is that I want people to understand that this is a book. Mm. It's not a monograph, it's a book. People still call it a monograph, but, which I don't like, but nonetheless... I think I called it a monograph a when I wrote it's about a, it. It's a book, because a monograph doesn't have this kind of mix in it. Um, so, the format to start with is something that may be trivial, and you may have read about it if you read the acknowledgments, but the format of this book is owing to my love affair with the books of Edmund Wilson. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, books of Edmund Wilson are all in that format and they are unique. Right. No one else has ever used that format. Right. And I've always been in love with it for precisely the reason, the way it lies in the hand. So, mm -hmm. so I, when I went to Gianfranco Monticelli to reopen the question, you know, I had a contract with him which expired many years ago because <laughs> I didn't produce. <laughs> uh -huh. So he was kind enough to reopen the conversation. And I took this book with me and I said, this is what I want. And uh, he was skeptical the way anyone would when you think of a book that's full of images uh -huh. being this size. But he agreed to it. Um, he did say he held on to it for a while and thought about it while we were talking about other things. And then all of a sudden, he interrupted the conversation to say, $45, that's all I can do. <laughs> So the result of that is that we do not have a dust jacket. We do not have a cloth cover. Uh -huh. We have this rather cheesy thing, which if you have the book, do you yeah. have it? Yeah, yeah, I have my copy right apart. here too. It, 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 some people say they like the fact that it, that it wears, but, but, but it's not what I, I would have liked to have cloth binding and I would like to have had a dust jacket. But uh, there was a negotiation about how many pages I could have and what it would be about. And uh, for me it was more important to have the format and to have the number of pages which I would have liked to have a few more pages. Mm. Uh, if there's a second edition I will try to add a few pages. 
because it only contains about less than half of my work, actually. So, so there are a couple of things that got left out. Um, more than a couple. But I don't particularly want to load it up with my work either. Or just because the whole thing, as you noted in your review, is the balance mm -hmm. between text and projects. And the text, by and large, in fact, all of the texts expand the frame right. of reference beyond particular projects. Sometimes the texts deal with a building type. Sometimes they deal with uh, with conversations. Sometimes there are lectures that I gave, and and as you know, it's arranged quite rigorously. Uh -huh. uh, chronologically, and there's a very specific reason for that, which is that I think for the book to be useful to young people, and that's what really interests me. I mean, I imagine students today and students 20 years from now or whatever, who may be interested in what I call the predicament of architecture. Uh -huh during the time frame of my practice, that this book is a useful source. Right. It's useful because uh, it's not really, it is, it is definitively not a monograph. The projects that are illustrated in it and described are never fully described. Uh -huh. They're only in it because they they illuminate some larger set of issues that I want to talk about. So you won't find a single project uh, in the book uh, comprehensively presented. Right. Um, and nobody has complained about that, which makes me, that doesn't mean, I mean, nobody has actually complained about that. And I, so I think they get it. Yeah. Um, and as you point out, it's a book to be read. I really wanted to have it read. Although, uh, it was not my idea that it had to be read cover to cover, rather that you would be able to dip into it. Uh -huh. uh, and a lot of people have done that, but on the other hand, some people have read it cover to cover, and it's very gratifying to me that they report that it really reads yeah. cover to cover. Yeah. Because they tell me, which is, I won't say that it wasn't on purpose, but I, I will say that it's a little bit a happy accident. It comes out of the chronological arrangement that one chapter sort of opens up the next chapter, opens up the next chapter. Mm -hmm. So people find that they want to read it from the beginning, which is very gratifying. Well, what I, what I think is interesting about that, um, and I did read it cover to cover, but I don't, I agree with you. I don't think that you need to. Um, but what was striking to me is how there are themes that it seems like you return to again and again in your work and in your writing and in your thinking. And I think it, I think things about kind of the ethics of architecture and what is the building supposed to do for the people who inhabit it. You, you return again and again to questions around 
placemaking and how a building is situated within a particular environment. And all of that is set up in that first project, which I guess was your kind of thesis project, and that you were asking those questions there. And I was curious, was part of putting this book together and was selecting these and it only being kind of half of your work, was it some way to kind of organize this um, you know, this kind of life's work, these kind of questions that you were returning to again and again to, you know, kind of make sense of them in some way. You know, everyone wants to leave something behind. And that's inevitable, you want. And the only thing I knew is that I didn't want it to be a monograph. Mm -hmm. Why so, not? Why, why, why are you well, so adamant about it? For a simple reason. But, uh, monographs, describe projects. Mm -hmm. uh, graphically and textually, they describe projects. Uh, they're very boring. Yeah. Uh, they're very hard to deal with. They're generally bulky. Uh, I hate, for example, I particularly hate the glossy paper that's used <laughs> in monographs. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I insisted that I wouldn't have that, even though I realized that the quality of the images may be marginally mm. degraded, but it doesn't matter because I'm not that interested. I mean, I want pictures to be attractive, but I'm not that interested in, in that aspect of it. So, um, what I, what interests me, and I say it very explicitly in the afterword, is to uh, give some insight into the predicament of architecture, which is what I call during my seven decades of practice, which happened to have been seven decades in which uh, a remarkable series of events happened in architecture, the triumph of modernism, the decay of modernism, urban renewal, which we were involved in, the catastrophe of urban renewal, uh, the postmodern movement and its very rapid collapse, and, and what's happened since then, and the current predicament of the digital revolution, which, you know, my thought about it is that. Mario Kaku calls the digital turn, mm -hmm. is, uh, has the, it's both, both energized and innervated architecture. Mm -hmm. Energized by the scope of its potential and innervated by the scope of its potential. <laughs> right, right. That, uh, and that worries me somewhat. So, one way out of that predicament is to explain in a way that a student, for example, can understand how architecture happens mm -hmm. and what are the issues that the architect has to contend with and why and how do they change over time. Um, and, uh, 
and to give a sense of, first of all, that in my opinion, any reasonably intelligent person, modestly gifted but not a genius, any reasonably intelligent person can make architecture. But in order to do so, you have to have an intention, a set of intentions, which you develop over time, starting at the beginning of your life. That's why this book begins with these funny pages. <laughs> I'll come back to that in a moment. And uh, um, and uh, that intentionality, my friend Peter Eisenman calls it a project. Mm. Uh, I'm not as specific as he is project, but intentionality is sense of, of what's, what are the values that underlie your work, what are you trying to do, how do you need to connect to people. There's a lot in here about, about the problem of mm -hmm of the evolution of the client constituency over this period, mm -hmm. which is really remarkable. Uh, and it's greatly complicated architecture because it's no longer what it was assumed to be even as recently as 50 years ago, which is that there is an institution that needs something and they go to choose an architect and the architect produces a project for a site, and that's that. But today we know that that's not the way it should happen. And the fact that architects let, allowed that to happen is responsible for a lot of terrible things. For example, if you start with the universities, the expansion of universities, starting at the end of World War II with the return of people from the war, that expansion, which still goes on, uh, transformed universities in a very significant way, which I do discuss. It, 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 it required buildings of a scale that tended to challenge uh, one of the underlying ideas of American universities, which is buildings framing an open space mm -hmm. or a series mm -hmm. of open spaces, the Harvard Yard being the greatest example of all, but then uh, I have to say something good about Harvard. <laughs> uh, and, uh, but uh, Harvard is also an example of how that strategy didn't hold up because the university, it did hold up in this sense that at least they protected the yard. Many universities didn't protect the equivalent mm -hmm. of their yards. Mm -hmm. The result is that building that the campuses that used to be space positive became building positive. Right. And spaces became residual rather than organizing. Um, so does that problem? The second problem is that the scale of buildings uh, invited and sometimes required 
changes in material and detail and structure from the traditions of the American campus. So and that was sometimes alarming or difficult to deal with because universities value their traditions and they think of their campus as preserving it, uh -huh. emblematic of a tradition. So, and I've had to deal with that often. Um, so that's a major second problem. And the third problem is that universities grew and in growing they impinged on their surrounding communities and met a lot of resistance. Uh -huh. To give you sample of that, the two buildings that I did at Harvard finished 2005 because the Center for Government and National Studies <laughs> on Cambridge Street. Are you familiar with yeah, that? I mean a little bit, but I know what building yeah. you're talking about, yeah. Well, it took me four full years to get that building through the process of Cambridge approval. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because there was so much negative publicity about her relationship. You know, it, it occurred at, at a very sensitive spot, which is probably why I was selected because they knew they were giving me a very hot potato. But uh, it's right at the edge of a residential neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it also involves an open space. Do you know? Gun Hall well. Very little, yeah. Well, there's a space between Gun Hall and the residential buildings on the other side of the block, and that space is one of the very few open spaces at Harvard which are shared by the community mm. and the oh, okay. university. Okay. So that's very, and unfortunately, um, before I was hired, they had been through a study. Uh, which resulted in a proposal that would eliminate that open space. Mm. So that, for example, when I went to Cambridge for my first meeting, I think Laurie Ellen went with me because we all knew that landscape was an important issue. The neighbors turned out in force with placards saying, Stop. Right, right. The building was called in Knaffel, Stop Knaffel. And they even had their dogs with Stop Knaffel around their neck. <laughs> it was, it was, and, and uh, it was a very interesting experience. However, in, the, in that four years, see, a lot of people assume that if you have that kind of a problem, it's bad for architecture mm -hmm. because architecture is going to suffer from this. And I say, you should never assume that. You should always assume that this is part of the task of the architect to extract from seemingly impossible situations with seemingly hostile forces, to extract from it a positive outcome. Right. That's why I say, if the outcome isn't good, you should blame the architect. Because because the architect cannot get off by saying, well, I had a terrible client or this or that. Right. Um, so part of the, I want, and in the case of the Harvard buildings, the result of multiple redesigns is that the buildings got better. 
Uh-huh. Right. Exactly. Why did they get better? Because I was very conscious of the opportunities that were opening up for me from the opposition to the design. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I could see how I could respond to those concerns and at the same time make, from my point of view, a better building. So, so those four wheels were not wasted. Uh-huh. They were, and, and uh, so again, the book, uh, because of its brevity, it doesn't go into a lot of detail about things like that, although it does happen to mention it. Uh-huh. It took four years, but uh, so something that comes through in the book, I think, because friends of mine who are architects, and by the way, especially young architects, most of the people who write to me are young architects. And by young, I mean under fifty. <laughs> but uh, but. They respond to the fact that to the insights in yeah what are the issues in architecture and how do you deal with them mm-hmm. and uh, so the goal of this book is to give people especially young people a sense of what it is to be an architect in a particular period which even though it isn't their period they can understand what's going on and be interested in what's going on, even though for them it's ancient history. But still it's interesting history. Yeah. Because it happens to be, again, the triumph of modernism, the decay of modernism, the onset of postmodernism, the decay of postmodernism, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's an interesting period. Well, let me, can, can I ask you another question kind yeah. of a, a, about that a little bit? And I think this kind of, um, something that you mentioned earlier is that a lot of the writing in the book does kind of widen the frame a little bit. And it doesn't just focus on the work itself, but kind of starting to put that into this context that you're talking about. And I'm kind of, and, and this writing was happening throughout this work also. This isn't, yes. uh, a lot of this writing wasn't done in, you know, well, in the very, process of the that's book. That's very, very important because I want people to understand how one's thinking evolves. So, yeah. so I wanted those early lectures to reflect my state of mind at that moment. That's why the lecture on building in cities occurred right after as Hancock was being finished. Mm-hmm. And then the lecture called American Architecture, 1958 to 83, occurred at a particular mm-hmm. moment. And, and, uh, I wanted to characterize that moment, and then uh, my inaugural lecture at Harvard was kind of what I said it was, where I stand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the lecture after which I devoted more effort than any other mm. is the architecture of the university, which, which. Um, was a very influential lecture at the time. It was actually, well, you wouldn't remember that time, but there was a time in the 80s when some number of schools of architecture were under attack. Yeah. 
First of all, as, as you know, may not know, but should know, that in the revolution of the late 60s and early 70s, architecture was one of the principal victims, and schools of architecture were principal victims because because of architecture, because of the way it operates in the world, because of its, some would say, contamination uh -huh. by so many issues, social, political, financial, and so on. When you have a kind of revolution, as the 68-69 was, um, architecture tends to get wiped out. Actually, I would say that architecture has never fully recovered as a discipline from that in the sense that you still, it's very hard to get people interested in architecture as a discipline, architecture as an art. Everybody has their agenda, right. be it environmental, social, whatever, and those agendas are important and architecture has to deal with them. That's a point I make throughout the book. But the problem is that those issues do not make an architecture. Right. Um, what I want people to understand is that, that while it's always wonderful to have a few geniuses, a few transcendent people, uh, the world cannot be made on their work. The work is going to be made on people, on people much like myself who are moderately intelligent, moderately gifted, but not nothing special. So how do you how do you make meaningful architecture when you're under under all these uh -huh. pressures? Uh -huh. And I maintain that you do it by facing that predicament and understanding how to make something positive out of all the negative things that you have to that to me is the most important lesson. I used to tell students that you really have to recognize that all the bad things that happen have hidden in them some potential. If you can recognize it to make something better, and, and therefore you cannot get caught up in the frenzy of moral, you know, uh, fist shaking and so on that happens because, I mean, you do have to respond to it. You have to respond, let's take right away the environmental okay. issues. They're really important and they are going to reshape architecture, but they're not architecture. Uh -huh. They are conditions that, that need to operate, but they don't get you over the finish line. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah themselves. Nothing mm -hmm. does. That's what architecture is about. And also I want people to understand that you can actually get an enormous amount of satisfaction out of being an architect if you can figure out how to deal with that predicament. Right. But you're always facing hostile forces. You're yeah. always facing difficult problems which which basically hostile to your design intent or seem right, that way. Right. 
And if you allow that to defeat you, then and unfortunately, mostly that's what happens. Yeah. So you end up with mediocrity, which with mediocre compromise solutions. It's terrible. It's terrible. It's what we see in housing. It's what we see often in universities. It's what we see even in public buildings. Uh -huh. uh, every building today, every is subject to so many pressures, so many right. people who want to be heard. Who and uh, and so the art of architecture is the art of knowing how to deal with that and make something positive out of it. So that brings me to something totally irrelevant, but I want to talk about it. Okay. Um, one of my favorite books is Boromini and the Roman Oratory by okay. Joseph Conrad. Um, and the reason it's one of my favorite books is that it's one of the very few books in which you can find out, in which you get a sense precisely of what is the predicament of the architect. Mm. At that time, you can almost feel, in fact, the thing that really excited me about it is, as I read this book, I said, I really got a sense of what it was yeah. to face the issues that he was facing. For example, you know, I don't know whether you know this building, but the people who commissioned this building were singers. That's what the oratory was. They were oh, okay, okay. And very few historians have that sense. That's mm -hmm. why I admire this book so much. Because you really get a sense of how, what, what the architect went through. These people had no interest in a fancy building at all. Right. In fact, they wanted a very plain building because they were singers and they weren't interested in architecture. Right. Anything. So what did they got? They got one of the most elaborate facades <laughs> in history. And how did it happen? It happened because Boromini, it's true that he did have a sponsor who helped him, but, but he basically found a way to tell them one thing and give them another. Right. And uh, so and the thing that's amazing about this is the author, Joe Connors, I don't know whether you know him. The name sounds familiar, he, but... He, he's the authority on Barmini. Okay. But uh, he began life as a classicist. Mm -hmm. He only became an architectural historian. So later, well, not really late, but probably in his 30s. And yet he has this insight that very few his historians have. And one of the reasons that... Uh, architectural histories that are often so boring is precisely because the historian doesn't get it, doesn't know why. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's what you might consider a trivial example of that, but I chose to put it in the book, is the story of Trinity Church. Yeah. Uh, where um, people don't understand why Richardson won the competition. They just don't understand because they don't think about uh, about the motivations yeah. of the client and what and and how the architect was able to respond to those mm -hmm. and um, get the job. Richardson, as you know, said there are two rules for practice of architecture. Rule one: get the job. Rule two, get the job. 
World Series got the job. <laughs> right. Right. So, uh, uh, but anyway, so that kind of I like to sprinkle a few insights like that because I think you need to. I mean, there's so much. It, it's so difficult, truthfully, to extract, to make architecture out of the opportunities, the challenges that we okay. face. And, and it's particularly difficult because it's still, there's still the residue of distrust, and not without justification that people have still remembering a modern architecture, which in their view dumbed down the mm -hmm. city. Mm -hmm. And it's true, but it did dumb down the city. Uh, because for every sea room building, you have 10,000 mediocrities. Right. And, uh, and people don't really understand that. Right. But they need to see that this is so difficult to communicate that to people. And, uh, um, well, and it's so, uh, I mean, my life and what's in the book is sprinkled with, uh, with fairly intractable problems. <laughs> and, and I'm very much aware that there may be different opinions the outcome, but uh, but I think you have to believe in something. Yeah, and uh, um, people ask me how I gave a lecture a couple of weeks ago at Columbia, in which I described the process of the Hancock Tower, mm -hmm. and somebody wrote me an email asking me saying, "How did you actually live through that?" Um, because it's all in the, more or less what's in the first written. And the truth is, I don't say it in the book, but I'm, I'm actually doing an essay in which I will say it. Mm. I did it only because I, I was born and grew up in Boston. Right. I never would have presumed to do something as manifestly egregious in any other city, and I've built in cities around the world, and you're a guest, and you, yeah. as a guest, you have to respect certain norms. That's interesting. The thing about Boston was that, uh, despite the fierceness of the opposition and the unanimity of it, because everybody came out, you know, all the deans of both architecture schools, all the architects in Boston, Blue Ribbon Commissions, mm -hmm. they all came out and said this building should not be built. And, uh, and nonetheless, I got through that simply by the fact that I believed that I understood the problem better than they did. Right. Um, and uh, and I, I think that I was proven correct because the building is it was proven correct that what Compton Square needed was in fact a tower, a very special kind of tower, mm -hmm. which has now, in conjunction with Trinity Church and the square, become quite memorable. The three work together, mm -hmm. the square, the church, and the tower. And, and as, a, as a group, what's interesting about them is that they, it really is a, mani 
marriage of memory and invention. Mm -hmm. It really is yeah. about resolving the predicament that grew out of a very specific topographical problem that mm -hmm. Copley Square was built outside of the next two, but outside of the well-organized blocks of the Back Bay. Do you know Boston well? Um, I've only been there a couple times. So. Well, anyway, so Copley Square was exposed to, mm -hmm. as I explained, mm -hmm. to all these forces and, and, and was kind of overwhelmed by them. And, and I said, first of all, I said, which is very, very important, that if you want to understand what to do, you have to, you have to place the problem in the stream of history. Right. You have to understand how it got into this impasse. So that's why understanding the history yeah. is yeah. crucial. Yeah. Having understood the history, it became clear to me that the only way to restore meaning in Copley Square in a way to invent a new meaning for Copley Square was to give Copley Square its own tower to, to that you right. had to, it could not stand aside from the new scale. It had to embrace right. the new scale, but in a very particular way. So uh, again, I'm hoping that the way I tell the story, uh, I think it's engaging because people <laughs> yeah, tell yeah, it, it is. but I'm hoping that people will learn from it that because you really do have to know when to bend and when mm -hmm. to stand mm -hmm. your ground. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a Chinese proverb about, I would say, I think about a strong person is like, a grass that bends in the wind. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In, in this particular case, of course, what made the story more problematic was the fact that, that, it, that there was a political solution mm -hmm. which got, made people justifiably very angry. Yeah. So we were really in the doghouse. But, but most projects, not as controversial as that, have, uh, there are some presumptions that have to be challenged. Mm -hmm. uh, coming back to universities, for example, it's, it's uh, a notable example that is in the book, the Graduate School of Management at UCLA. Oh, right. Um, that was when it was built, the second largest building at UCLA. And all the buildings that had been built, UCLA was established in the 30s with the Norman, uh, Italian Norman architecture mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of Royce Hall and the library. And, and after World War II, again, but particularly in the 60s and 70s, there was this explosion of big buildings, which totally, again, rendered what was supposed to be spaces, rendered them marginal, mm -hmm. building huge, bulky buildings. So the main, my main agenda in that project was to show that you can build a big building and still make it a building that shapes space. Right, right. And in this particular case, it not only shapes space, but it shapes a pathway from the lower campus to the upper campus and things like that. So in that sense, 
things I put in the book, uh, I put in for a particular reason, a particular point, and as you probably noticed, there's no detailed description of the building beyond the point that I want to make. Right, right. Because otherwise it would become huge and unmanageable, and it's not interesting, truthfully. I mean, yes, I'd like to, but, but in this context, you have to keep people engaged. So that's why I am always so pleased to learn that people read it occasionally cover to cover because it means that they're engaged. Yeah. I want, I want to connect this a little bit to, to teaching because I think, you know, the way you talk about that book, which was exactly how I felt reading your book and that I kind of felt like I understood your thought process, kind of what you were going through in, in the moment. And you're talking about this book as being a book that should be read and you know, you're imagining it for young architects, for students. You are a teacher, you know, you, you were the, the chair at Harvard for a while. I'm curious um, how teaching kind of influences your work or, or what it is about teaching and kind of passing on these ideas um, that, that's uh, so kind of important to you in the way that you think about all of this work. Well, it's important and it's not only important in the formal act of teaching at a university, it's important even in the way one conducts one's practice. Right. So, um, because, um, anyway, that's obvious, I think. But, but uh, I, I've taught most of my life, but mostly as a studio critic, mm. uh, until I let except for that five years at Harvard. Mm -hmm. As chair, so I never, except for that engagement, I had no responsibility for education in the larger sense. Right. Yeah. Focused on studio teaching, and actually, I don't. I did a lot of it, but I'm not sure that I was that good at it. Um, but I mean, teaching is a is a matter of personality and enthusiasm and commitment, which you sense uh -huh. in a teacher. Um, and uh, I, I would say that because, as you can tell, I gave not a lot but occasional lectures all the way through. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, um, and occasional papers and things. And generally speaking, I was dealing with what engaged me at the moment. So the one, the lecture on building in cities was the result of my first two decades of practice, which was entirely devoted to big development. Right. Um, and architecture in the university was was my assessment of the dilemma, the misfit status of uh -huh. architecture uh -huh. as a discipline, uh -huh. which now I will say that that issue finally has been addressed in, in a number of schools, 
because as you can tell, I was not a big fan of the program that I went through myself. Yeah. Because it was incredibly, should I say, impoverished intellectually. Mm -hmm. uh, except what was great about it was the students and the enthusiasm and the fact that we were all determined to remake the world. So it really didn't matter that, for the most part, the teachers were not inspiring us. Mm. Well, a few, a few did. Uh, but uh, but the, the loss of confidence in architecture and in architectural education that happened in the late 60s and 70s destroyed almost every school or dumbed down mm -hmm. almost every school. Mm -hmm. Took a good decade to recover. Uh, one of the rare exceptions to that was Cooper Union because of John Hader. Mm -hmm. Somehow he managed to keep architecture as a discipline alive. But in most schools, including notably Harvard, architecture as a discipline was simply, uh, uh, what am I going to say, squashed <laughs> under this load of politico social. Yeah issues. Uh, in 1969, when the revolution at Harvard took place, I had the misfortune to be the president of the GSD alumni. Mm. And the school, well, you wouldn't know this, because in a way I should have put it in the book, but it would take another chapter. The school shut down completely. Mm. And, and uh, the GSD was the epicenter in the sense that if you wanted to get your red fist silk screened onto your t-shirt, you took it to the basement of Robinson Hall mm. and the red fist was designed by a student mm -hmm. Robinson Hall and that's where you so it was very emblematic yeah, yeah, yeah. which did not please the president at all and he took his revenge in horrible ways. But anyway, during that period of spring, summer of 69, uh, my task was to sort of organize meetings between faculty, student, alumni to try to get out of this mm. impasse. And I, documented 150, 150 hours of meetings in about six months. And during those meetings, so far as I can recall, the word architecture was never used. Mm -hmm. It was all about governance mm -hmm. and roles and responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And the students wanted to write a new constitution for the GSD. I mean, literally political. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So you can see where it was going. Yeah. Architecture was erased, and then the president was so unhappy about the GSD that he appointed a professor from the business school to be the new dean, <laughs> and then ensued a decade of um, really sort of nothing. Mm -hmm. and that's why I say I was lucky because when I went to be chair, 
There was nowhere to go but up. Right. So, yes, in a sense, I was the beneficiary of that. And it permitted me to engage in my own strategy, which was, as you know, rather disruptive. And, uh, but, uh, the, the vulnerability of architecture, both in education and in practice, to being uh, suppressed as a discipline by all the ancillary disciplines that we have to deal with. That's, that's a real problem. And, and that's why architecture was a misfit, because it didn't have a discipline that was recognized by the university of even being deserving. However, now at Harvard and elsewhere, there are a whole lot of programs that do link the school to other branches of the university. So that part has been mm -hmm. strengthened. Yeah. What is crucial, of course, is that you need to strengthen those outreaches, but you can't lose the core of the discipline, mm. the understanding mm -hmm. that none of these things in and of themselves make architecture. They're all essential right. uh, ingredients that have to be responded to, but something else is needed, and that's what I'm, you know. I, I, I hope this isn't a weird way to ask this question, but I'm, I'm very interested in what you think it is about architecture that has kept you engaged with these questions for as long as you have. And that you are still, you know, that this book is not the end, as you're kind of talking about, that you're still thinking about this stuff. What is it about this that you keep kind of uh, having these questions? I'd say that I'm not terribly gifted. If you're not terribly gifted, yeah. you have to find a way of engaging the world that's meaningful. Mm -hmm. So and one of my purposes, which I was getting around to saying, of the book is to somehow show people without actually saying it that if you go about it the right way, you can contribute to the discipline mm -hmm. without being a transcendent genius. Right. I mean, uh, you still have to be in awe and, and respect and understand uh, those very gifted creative people. But, but the fact is that the world is not going to be built by those people. It's going to be built by less gifted people. Mm -hmm. And how can it be built by less gifted people without being a disaster? And, and that's where I think yeah. What I'm trying to communicate is that you have to engage these other issues and find out how to fold them in mm -hmm. to the discipline of architecture. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, in the process, you have to learn how to deal with clients and how to persuade people and how to make, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of stuff. It's so messy and it's so complex. Uh, the ways in which architecture engages the world and many of those ways are so unfavorable to architecture to begin with that it's just a huge uphill battle but it's very gratifying I, 
I don't regret for one moment uh, choosing this path. Uh, although I recognize, I hope the book somehow allows you to see that there can be misapprehensions, there can be uh -huh. mistakes, there can be things that go wrong that don't destroy possibility, but you have to recognize it. Right. And, and uh, so, um, I mean, most notably in my generation, the erasure of history uh -huh. was a big problem. The result is that if you go downstairs, you'll find one of the larger architectural libraries in New York. Because <laughs> I sort of overcompensated. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but, but it, you know, I was 40 before I really um, began to understand what history, how history could be useful to me. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, problem with postmodernism is that that it was the wrong way to make history useful um, because it, that stylistic mimicry was just totally totally wrong yeah and uh, so and, and one of the, I was very disturbed because Portland Museum is one of my favorite buildings <laughs> and I was very upset when it was published, uh, I'm forgetting his name now, but it was an Italian architect who was the leader of postmodernism, had a magazine, and he featured my museum as an example of postmodernism. <laughs> I was very upset by that. And I understand why Venturi was always very upset with Yeah. Because, you know, if there's anyone understood how to make history the source of invention, it was Venturi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, you know, I couldn't do that. I, truth, probably I couldn't have done it even if my life had been different, but having, having spent, uh, you know, having been introduced to architecture through a rather narrow modernist lens, mm -hmm. um, and uh, one of my weaknesses is that I don't have an ironical bone in my body, whereas Venturi is all about irony. <laughs> right. So, so I'm a little bit at a disadvantage. Yeah, I can't really deal with that, which, and I think being able to deal with irony is one of the most important talents that you could have. Very few people have it. Mm -hmm. I truthfully don't think of anyone outside Venturi who really yeah. was gifted in that way of making. So that's why in the chapter on on the Sainsbury Wing, I oh, yeah. readily acknowledge that, that it would have what I did was was not ironic. Right, right. What he did was totally ironic. 
Yeah. And he deserved to win, probably, because ironing was the right mode. Yeah, that's, yeah. In that, in that situation. Um, so, um, can I turn the conversation? Sure. Just for a minute, because yeah. I just want to be clear. I just wanted to, this is a book that recently appeared called Designing in Garden by Michael Van Valkenburg. Do you know him? I know that name. Anyway, this is, I think, the best book on landscape architecture that I've ever read. Mm. It, and it's devoted entirely to one project. Oh, interesting. And it has the same mix of text and images. And of course, it's the same publisher, except much. I'm angry because he got a cloth cover. Yeah, I was going to say, no sleeve, though. <laughs> yeah, well, but he, then he got embossed. He got what I didn't get. But, uh, but it's, it's really, if you're in, uh, and I know you are interested in books. Yeah. I think this is a particularly handsome book and it's also very well written. Yeah. It's entirely about one small project. That's interesting. I was going to ask you about... Into, you get a sense. Yeah. In other words, unlike my book, which is kind of encyclopedic, mm -hmm. this book, That's interesting. through the lens of a single project, gives you a sense of what it is to be a landscape architect. So it's uh, quite amazing. I was going to ask you about books that have influenced you or influenced this book, and you've already given two. This is, this is brand new. So, yeah, this just got retrospectively. <laughs> um, in terms of format, this was the model. Yeah. In terms of uh, content, there is no model. Because, truthfully, right. if you think about it, I mean, I have a number of architects' biographies or autobiographies. They're generally not interesting. Yeah. Uh, and... One of the reasons they're not interesting is that the people who write them, well, even if the, an architect writing an autobiography generally uh, is doing a verbal monograph, right. which is not interesting. Right. And, and somebody writing a biography of an architect is generally ticking off all the, mm -hmm. all the boxes mm -hmm. yeah. getting through a career. Yeah. And and uh, so you know I don't. That's why I admire this book so much because I don't know many books. Yeah, um, and I know a lot of historians, some of whom I admire a lot, but I still don't feel that they grasp what it is to be an architect. Mm -hmm. That's very rare, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this as the kind of last question, which I think is actually a way to. A, a nice way to kind of wrap all of this up, because you mentioned you mentioned very early on that you were kind of giving these lectures or writing these uh, these kind of essays because you wanted to kind of give insight into what you were thinking at the time, and you mentioned that you were writing some things now, and I'm kind of curious what what are the things that are exciting you right now? What are the things that you are thinking about now? Well, uh, I'm no longer really in practice. Mm -hmm. I have. One project I just started construction okay. a museum in Charleston. Okay. In book. Mm -hmm. It's very important to me. Uh, I hope I'll be around when it's finished. But otherwise, at this point, I'm actually thinking of 
writing another book. Mm. I'm not going to tell you about it. <laughs> but it's not going to be anything like this. Okay. Uh, and uh, but uh, so so you have to realize that in effect my career as an architect is essentially over. Mm -hmm. My life is, but, but that doesn't mean. But I can still keep writing. Yeah, that's kind of why I was and curious. I'm trying to figure out. Again, for me, it's all about because I still think that it's not sufficiently understood about what are the sources of architecture. What is it that, mm -hmm. that in one's own life that leads you to, to think about things in a certain way? Um, you notice, but you haven't commented on the first pages of this book. Oh yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. You said you were going to come back to this too. So uh, you see, uh, I wanted to have uh, to give people a sense of my life before I right started architecture. And originally, I had. Had a preface, uh, illustrated oh. preface, and my editors at Over Under. You know, there are mm -hmm. two people: Mark Pasnick. Do you know him? Uh, I know of them. I don't. I don't and, know the uh, person. Chris Grimley. Chris mm -hmm. Grimley is the designer. Right? I chose them specifically because I wanted the design and the editing in one place. Yeah. I didn't want to have a designer over here and an editor. Yeah. It worked out quite well. Yeah. Right. So, but what they said is, no, you must start the book with, with a chapter on your thesis. Yeah. There cannot be any preamble because it's very exciting the way it starts. Yeah, yeah, it is. And you, you plunge right into it. They said, and anything else I propose, they rejected or they were very negative. So finally, I said, well, what am I going to do? There are a few things I just, so uh, this, their solution, which I think is quite successful, is that we can have a few pages uh, without any explanation. Yeah, and they just sit there. Without any explanation. And uh, of course, one of them is one that says, why well, I shouldn't be an architect. Um, the other one is about a very important trip that I made to Eastern Europe in 1947. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I returned from that trip determined to go back to Warsaw mm. after I graduated because I was so excited about the replanning in Warsaw, the people I met there. Yeah. It was thrilling. And uh, my, the recovery from the horrors that they've been through. But by the time I graduated, the Cold War had set in, Stalin had stepped in. Mm -hmm. so, so anyway, uh, 60 years later or so, um, uh, there, was an there was occasion for the photographs that I took then, which mm -hmm. had been in a box for 60 years, to I had an occasion to show them 
some people in Warsaw, and they got, they were so stunned, they produced a major exhibition and a book. Mm. <laughs> so that's my first book, actually. Uh, oh, wow. Of my photographs of Warsaw in 1947. Uh, and uh, so, but uh, do you think that worked, by the way? This, and a lot of people find it amusing, but you haven't commented on it. Yeah, well, I mean, you said you were going to come back to it, so I thought I, I thought I would let you come back to it. I thought, you know, I the the Poland one, I did not. Now hearing that context makes more sense, but I got it as this kind of visual preface, kind of like you're saying, it's a way, it yeah. gives us this kind of sense of placement well, before we read the into text, it. which is difficult to read, yeah, it, is. it reflects my, uh, my enthusiasm for socialist planning. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think it was a smart, it was definitely the right decision to limit it, limit it, let it, let those just sit there on their own yeah. and then go right into your thesis. I thought, right. I thought so it was they smart. did the right thing. Yeah. And, uh, and it does make a big difference. Uh, so I think the conversations have quite a different feel to them from the lectures mm -hmm. and people seem to find that otherwise they were all lectures, I think it would be too much. Yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 kind of like what we were talking about at the beginning. I think that kind of, the difference in tone, the, the move between conversation, between lectures, between essays, between remarks, between visuals are, are not to kind of go all the way back to, to the way we started, but just as a way to kind of wrap up the conversation. It is a way to do exactly what I think you set out to do, which was kind of mark this moment in time, kind of taking your career and your work as a lens to ask these bigger questions. And that's kind of what I took away from that's, it. it right. and, and I think it's, I think it's a, a, great, uh, a great book. And I think, you know, I think you're selling yourself a little short saying that you're not, not gifted, but uh, well, this conversation was, was completely- I didn't say I'm not gifted, I said I'm not extraordinarily moderately, <laughs> moderately gifted. Yeah, you know, I, I, anyway, well, yeah. but but if you want to, if you're moderately gifted and you want to accomplish something significant, you have to marry it mm -hmm. to a larger intention. Yeah, and that's what this book is about. Yeah, is about. yeah. Me. I think I think that you you succeeded. I. Um, this, this conversation was completely an honor for me. Thank you so much for doing this. I really enjoyed it. This episode was recorded on November 20th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.